I really struggled with how to title this episode. Stefan Lobel is the founder of Bluffworks, a company that makes travel clothes that don't look like travel clothes. So our conversation is based on his apparel brand, and it does provide a fascinating and revealing look at how the fashion and garment industry works. But this is a wide-ranging episode that goes far beyond the apparel industry. Stefan's story rings so true for so many entrepreneurs. First, he found something that he really liked but wasn't readily available. Second, he became miserable in his job, which is a great starting point for launching a company. How he did it provides key lessons for any entrepreneur, and how he's grown the brand has lessons for those of us who've already made the leap and are trying to figure out the next steps. Please welcome Stefan Lobel. by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. So, Bluffworks, what is it and why did you start it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, Bluffworks makes travel apparel that doesn't look like travel apparel. It's sort of the easiest way to wrap your head around it. Um, our customers find us because they're looking for clothes for a big trip, but then they're like, wait a second, like, you know, travel clothes that look like normal tra- travel clothes, I mean, or look like normal normal clothes, We've got all of the technical fabrics and features built in and lots of security pockets, but everything's like machine washable and easy care, such that once someone puts us in our wardrobe, they just use it for their entire lives back home. Right? Yeah, they don't look like uh, preppers clothes with you know the extra pockets and all that. I mean, I like a good pair of cargo pants. I get made fun of by some of my younger friends for that nowadays. But yeah, your stuff, it looks like normal dress clothes, not, not full on like super formal office attire. But close, you know, casual Friday plus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the whole idea is that our lives are just becoming so much more blended. Like if you go on a trip, you're like, well, what kind of trip is that? There might be a day or two of business. You might be visiting, you know, friends and family. You might go for a hike. You might get on a bike. Um, you know, you might you do something that's super casual, but then end up at a nice restaurant, right? Because that's what we all like to do when we travel. And you just want to look appropriate along the way, so... Well, you mentioned bike. That's actually how I found out about you guys a few years back. Really, when you were first getting started, either you or somebody that was handling some PR for you sent a pair for us to check out for Bike Rumor. It's kind of like you know a commuter bike work pant, and they worked yeah, fantastically. Yeah. Just sort of stayed yeah. in touch. And yeah, absolutely. You, you have certainly rounded out the line since then. When you started, it was pretty lean, and now you're you're getting there. And I want to talk to you kind of about how you've grown the line a little bit later, but. For starters, like, why did you start this? So, you know, the story began with me living in Vietnam. So, um, you know, a number of years ago, my wife and I decided that we were going to have an adventure before we had kids. So I outsourced myself to write software in Vietnam for $4 an hour. <laughs> and it was an amazing adventure. And while I was there, I wore travel clothes because I, you know, I rode a motorbike to work every day. It was smoking hot. You'd be, get caught in the rain like once a week. And when I came back to New York, 
and I had a real software job, I couldn't wear my travel clothes. And I'm like, this is crazy. You know, we just had a, had a kid. My life was busy and focused. And it, it, I just couldn't allocate the amount of time it took to care for my clothes to look decent in New York City. It just felt wrong to me. Um, and then, you know, the second thing that happened is that, and, and this is a catalyst, which is I became miserable at work. And there's a lot of times that it takes misery or some sort of other like tough position to get an entrepreneur to act. And, and that's what I finally did. Right on. And what was the first step? So, so the first step, I mean, I think we should pause for a second and really talk about what it's like to be miserable at work. I think there's a lot of people <laughs> in terms of entrepreneurs that really feel that, um, where they're like, oh my God, my job is terrible for these reasons. Yeah. Right? What was, so what was the straw that broke your camel's back and made you, know, you say, screw this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually the, the day is, um, my job changed such that I had nothing to do. And I was, I was always a star performer or, you know, I mean, it, you know, work went well for me, right? It was great. And I loved it. And, um, I had nothing to do and I was just sort of an emasculated. And one day I hid out in the stairwell to cry and I just said to myself, no more. So I took the summer, I went to New York's fashion Institute of technology and, um, actually I'm missing a huge part of the story. I went home to my wife and right at the same time, our lease renewal showed up. And what they do in, in New York, at least, is they tell you the annual total that you are on the hook for. And we had a 12-month-old kid, and the total was like astronomical. And my wife had left teaching to, to take care of our son. And I looked at her, and I was like, I cannot sign up for this amount of money. I, I can't commit to it for another year. So we took that summer. We moved. We, we left our apartment, put our stuff in storage. We moved in with my parents. My son slept in the closet with a crib in the closet. And we said, we're gonna take the summer to figure it out. And I went to New York's Fashion Institute of Technology. And I went there to take entrepreneurship courses. I'm like, I'm, look, I'm not gonna be the guy who learns to sew, right? And at the end of the summer, I decided, okay, one of all the startup ideas I have, I, I'd like to pursue this one in apparel. And um, two, it's, it's, I'm willing to stick out my job and make it work in New York City. And um, from that point, you know, it took me another uh, over a year to find the right fabric to put the product on Kickstarter and la to launch the company. And I know we want to talk about that for a second, but I'd, I'd like to say like one more thing about misery. And, you know, I, I talked to a lot of entre entrepreneurs and or, or people who want to start something. Um, and it was a benefit for me to run the company alongside my day job for a number of years because I had income and I could try to, you know, get this thing off the ground. Right. But before you make that decision, I talked to a lot of people who are like, my job sucks or my boss is a jerk for these reasons. And I think it's really important to just see your decision as one of three options, which is either you can be happy at work, you know, you can be miserable at work or you can leave. And only after I left the software company did I realize like I was not entitled to a happy life there. Like there's, there's no reason like even if I can get together with five other people and say that I didn't like um, the way the company is run, maybe my boss is a jerk. My boss was not a jerk at this company, it just wasn't, wasn't for me, right? But I'm sure lots of other people, you know, we've all been in that situation where you get together with your compatriots and you're like, that guy is, is terrible. If we could get rid of that guy, the company would run so much better and this, this, this. But, you know, it's not your company. Who's to say you're right? Who's to say that you're entitled to it? Why do you got to fix this problem? Maybe you go work someplace else. I think it's really important to let go of that sort of ownership 
of why the bad situation should be better for you there. Because once you do that, you start to see options of, you know, how you can make it work someplace else. I like that because I don't think that's a common mindset. You know, it's, you're right. It's, you got to take ownership of your situation. And I've heard a few other guests say that in different ways is that you can't put the blame on other people, right? If you're not happy, that's on you. It's not everybody else's fault. And if you always have that victim mentality of, uh, well, I'm stuck here and it sucks. Well, you're not stuck there and it probably sucks because of your outlook. You know, to some extent, there are bad situations. But anyway, I like yeah. that, that mindset and that viewpoint. Yeah. And if you take all the time that you spend, you know, being miserable, you know, doing other, you know, digital things, whether it's, you know, blowing time on Instagram or bitching and moaning or, you know, drinking too much to like, you know, patch up those wounds. If you take that time and energy and you put that into something else, um, you can be productive. Uh, man, you know, it's funny you say that. And this is a total, totally off topic. But I was thinking about that recently because I've, I've got like four little side projects. And the smarter Tyler knows I should just be focused 100% on doing bike rumor because that's what's paying the bills. That's the main gig, right? But like, I'm so excited about some of these other opportunities. And I think, all right, well, like, this is what I do for fun. Like, I do these other little things for fun if they grow and they become something wonderful. But like, other people, they go have a whiskey at night. You know, they kick back and watch Netflix and binge for a couple hours each evening. Well, instead, like, I do other things. So I feel like, if you sort of prioritize what you want to get, even if you're sitting at the job like you did, right? Like you spent your free time doing something that was fun for you and building this new venture. Yeah. That's It's a simple choice, really. Like most companies, I don't care how involved they are, at least the kind of stuff I've been tinkering with, which spans from consumer product goods to another, like a travel blog to various other stuff, like if you really put in, you know, even just like 30 minutes a day, you would be amazed at what kind of progress you could make into creating something real. You know, I agree. And I have to say that, you know, it's not that I did it well, right? I mean, this is, this is the benefit <laughs> of hindsight being 2020. Um, the first thing is having, having a day job, having a startup and having the family was just brutal. I mean, really, really hard. Oh, and, and by the way, like, where's my life in there, right? Where, where are the things that I like to do? Um, so that that's the first thing. I, you know, I wasn't perfect with my time, which has enabled me to look back and be like, boy, this these things should have been better. Um, but you know, I, focus does become everything in a business at some point. I, I I don't I can't say when you have multiple things going on, you know, whether or not you should work on the next the next thing. But I you know I can't say just from my personal experience that the further I went in the business, the more I realized how important focus was, and it was my team that told me um, because I'm primarily a creative person. They're like. Steph, when you get stressed, you take on more. <laughs> so rather than saying, you know, this is hard, this is a challenge, you know, we need to go deeper to make this channel uh, or part of our business be stronger. I'd be like, hey, you know what? How about this idea? How about we that? And, and my team is just like shaking their head. They're like, what are you doing? And it, it took me a few years of executing to really, to really see how important focus is. And investors will, will tell you about that. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about how you built your team, but let's, I feel like that's got to be a little bit down the road. So first steps, okay, you went to the Fashion Institute, you have a, a, did you get a degree in entrepreneurship? No, no, no. I just, remember, I just took classes for the summer, okay. you know, night classes to study entrepreneurship and to figure out in those three months while my son's sleeping in the closet, whether or not we were going to stick it out in New York. That was the objective. Okay. Right. So 
so that was finished. And then I decided, okay, I was going to launch this one single pair of pants. And um, we put them on Kickstarter of May of 2012. And they took off. And, but how did you and, get to that point? Like who, how did you find somebody to design and do the pattern making? How did you yeah. find a manufacturing partner? Yeah, yeah. So all of my contacts came from FIT. By, by going to FIT, um, there was a lecturer, there's actually a guest lecturer there who came and he did this extremely sobering um, r- financial rundown of why his apparel business went out of business on the whiteboard. And he said, hey, anybody want to have coffee with me? You can, you know, learn from my mistakes. So I had coffee with him and I was like, this is what I need. You know, I need a, a pattern raker and I need a person that's good for sourcing to help me find a, a fabric that's going to meet what I need and I need, and I need, a, need a, you know, a manufacturer. And I basically hired a, a you know, a consultant or a contractor, right? which in New York, you're in the right place. You can find people in New York who know how to start fashion businesses. So if you're doing something else, if you're starting a cosmetics line, what you need to do is connect with people in the industry who know how to do these things. Yeah, that's, it's like brilliant, but so simple. But it's one of those things, I think some of these so simple things, people overlook it, you know, they'll just lose their mind not knowing where to start. And that's a pretty good one. Okay, so you have all the suppliers in place and you know where you're going and then you start making it. Did you have to produce anything prior to the Kickstarter campaign or was the Kickstarter really the beginning and then if it went well, you'd start making stuff? Yeah, so um, in my case, I'd ordered 3,000 yards of material because when you do a manufacturing run, usually in apparel, there there are minimums. It's very difficult to say, I have this special custom material and I'd like you to make 50 yards. Like. No, no one wants to get out of bid for that kind of business, right? Um, so I had made the materials and I would brought them to New York. And, and this to me was a big part of illustrating on Kickstarter that the product was really going to happen, right? Um, so the materials were ready, manufacturers lined up, and, and we were ready to go. Um, and as a result, we were about two months late with rolling off our first pairs, which in 2012 and for Kickstarter, like, it wasn't that bad, right. you know? Um, and so the material then, you didn't just order an off-the-shelf roll of fabric. This was a fabric you oh, yeah, you no. set the specs for and somebody custom manufactured oh, for you. Yeah, I mean, it took me more than a year to find it. Lots of lots of failures, super difficult, you know, and our, our failures persist today And that we're about to roll out a T-shirt next month and, you know, I went through 50, I went through 50 candidates, right? I mean, and apparel is notorious for this. I, I should say vendors are notorious for this. So if you're like, Stefan, what's the hardest thing in your business? It's not my customers. It's not my employees. It's it's vendors, and they will let you down all the time. And I think for anyone who has any experience with backing Kickstarter projects, I think we all know this, right? Because we've all received an update. I, I've backed over two hundred projects on Kickstarter. Um, we've all gotten updates where they say, "Well, you know, my supplier says that now, you know, the." flexibility porosity of this, you know, yada yada plastic is failing on the such and such. So we need to get a special durometer machine. I mean, I'm making it all up, right? But you get the idea. It's a problem. There's a manufacturing problem that results in a delay. Happens all the time. So you've been doing this for a while. How, like, what are some things you can do to mitigate that? Like better vetting of suppliers or letting them know your expectations earlier? Like what's, what do you do to minimize that problem? So, the first thing is that the, the, that the partner you choose is is everything. I mean, it is it is absolutely everything. And there have been points of time in the company where I was too slow to let a partner go, and I will suffer fools no more. Right. So you got to see the writing on the wall. If it starts to go badly, it's gonna go badly, and you've got to pull the plug, um, and and 
and move to someplace else. That's the first thing that that partner selection is so important. And, you know, you do that, um, but it's sort of, you know, based on references, right. Or looking at what they have made that can hopefully apply to what you are trying to make. But the second thing is that it just takes a tremendous amount of time. I mean, because if you're looking at what a manufacturer's put out, you're not making the same thing. You're not making the same product as somebody else, right? So you, you know, your product is going to be different. Um, projects have problems in R and D. Nobody does anything as well the first time as they're going to do it the thousandth time. Um, manufacturing processes, this is really important. They are dramatically different in prototype from scale, dramatically different. So we're working on a, a really awesome field jacket right now with a, you know, obviously waterproof, breathable barrier, you know, good for cycling and all that, and the city and all that kind of stuff, right? And the difference in the fat and the materials that we get that are sample yardage compared to production are significant. Um, so if you, you know, you can have, you can do well in the sample phase and you have problems in manufacturing. So real, but really it's about time. You have to get something that is proven. So you get to the point of like, we have, we have proven that we can make it. And the only way to get to that point is to have enough time to solve all the problems. Time is the bully. Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like the very first guest I had for the podcast, that was one of the things we talked about is was designed for manufacturing, which he was talking about like hard physical, like bike component type parts that are either machined or something. Um, but yeah, that's interesting that the fabrics can change from samples and screw up. I guess it depends like the type of needle and thread used to assemble or something in your case would differ or like, how does that differ? Oh, well, I was just talking about materials, right? right? Meaning like, like the hand feel of a material, you know, I approve, I approve something that's in sample yardage and then you get production yardage and, um, there are good, there are goods, there are products that, that their customers have never seen the light of day of, um, where we're actually going round and round with vendors that have made thousands of yards of material that didn't meet our sample. Jeez. Right. So it, it's just materials. We're not even talking about manufacturing now. And then manufacturing happens all the time. You know, oh, the, the machine wasn't tightened in between stitching this part of the garment or that part of the garment. Oh, the fusible wasn't applied correctly. Oh, the, I mean, it just goes on, on and on. Um, hey, I'll, you know, there's one other thing that, that my operations team, um, main guy on, on my ops team says, which is that you can never make up for a delay in the beginning of the process at the end of the process. So if you're like, this thing takes three months, let's give it four. If you spend that extra month in the beginning, you're, you're, you're already late. I mean, it's just, no one's gonna pull it in. It's not gonna happen faster. It's just, it's just so rare, right? And if you're in this experience where you're already, you're already seeing delays, that's because you haven't done it before, right? So if there are, are unknown things to find when you turn over stones, that pattern is most likely to persist. And you're gonna have a delay at the end, and then you're gonna be late. Okay. And so you mentioned that you've you've been slow before to let go of vendors when there were obviously things going wrong. What are some of the warning signs that you have a bad vendor? I think that um, I, have, I have a really good friend named Aaron McHugh who writes a lot. Of, he writes a his a blog and a podcast called Work Life Play, and um, he he has this thing where he says never hire anyone that you wouldn't want to be stuck in a car in a snowstorm with for twelve hours. And I think you just you just start to know you're like, I don't trust this guy. We don't have a good partnership. If something goes wrong, do we look at each other and like, let's solve this together? What is their level of commitment? Um, you know, how do, what, are, what is the language they use? Are they, is this like sort of an arm's length adversarial relationship? Or are they like, yeah, if this happens, we're not going to charge you for that. We're not gonna, right. Like you, for me, it's always been in the back of the, my mind. It's about trust. Um, and then you also get a sense of competency, 
you look at somebody's work and you're like, eh, but you know, this is not looking really good. This is the, this, this is, this is what happens. Every situation is going to happen. The, the, the entrepreneur, the company owner, whatever is going to say, but, but do we have time to switch vendors? But who are you going to find to do this work instead? But we've already invested so much in this one. And in my experience, every time you just try to keep going, it's, it's never been worth it. It's yeah, it's almost like if you have to justify it to yourself, then you should have probably quit. But, you know, forget about the sunk cost and kind of go with your gut. That's, you got to cut the cord early. You know where it's going. You, you know where it's going. It really, you need, to, you need to let go. God, we wanted to launch in June. You're launching in September. It's just, right. it's right. Well, we're You're all optimists. Anyway. We're optimists at heart yet. as entrepreneurs, right? And it's like, uh, you know, yeah, they, this one wasn't great, but I bet they can get it. They can do better. You know, the next run will be better. And, and inevitably, it's not. That's a good point. We're optimists at heart. You're right. Okay. So how – well, actually, I was going to ask, where is your stuff zone? Is, is it – are you using domestic manufacturing, foreign, or how's it – what's the mix? So we were using domestic manufacturing for a number of years, and then we've since just moved everything off overseas. Offshore. There are two reasons. The first reason that everybody understands is margin, right? And then for for a long period of time, if you if your margins are not productive, it just it just chews up too much capital, and the business can't survive. Um, so for us, it just it was not long term sustainable. There may be a product or two that we could either do a special edition or we could bring back to the US, but the large part of the line is is not economically feasible. When you're on the shelf next to the whole rest of the sea of products that are not made in the US, that's what you're competing against. Um, and someone could say, oh, there, you know, there are pants made in the United States, et cetera, right? But because of the nature of the fabrics we're using, technical fabrics, it's, it's hard and expensive to make a technical fabric not look technical. Like, you know, our, our hero product is our blazer. And, and you touch it, people touch it like fashion people touch it in New York and they're like, wow, it feels like wool, right? And it's 100% poly with mechanical stretch. It doesn't even have spandex in it. Super soft, machine washable, lightweight, breathable. It's expensive fabric, right? So making, it, making you know, garments like that in the United States are expensive. Here's the second reason, and this is, this is the one that people don't realize as much. It has to do with where is the expertise Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of producing the garment, you know, you, we walk into, we walk into shops, we're like, can you make this t-shirt? And they're like, we want the stitch. We're like, Oh, we don't have a machine. Right. So there's even expertise that is, that, that is not here. But in our particular case, it also had to do with management. When you send an apparel garment to be made overseas, you, you buy the piece. Like if you buy, you know, if you buy a pair of pants, you have no idea how much you're spending on zippers, on fusible, on pocketing, on threads, on buttons, you know, marking grading pattern, you don't know the cost of all those things. You just say, okay, I'm buying a finished good and it costs this, right? In the United States, we had to manage all that. We had to manage the procurement of all of the raw materials. Um, we had to manage the the marking, the grading, grading the, you know, the pattern making. It, 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 it was just way too onerous. So I had to have a huge staff, you know, on, te- on store focusing on that. And I, I still have that staff, but that staff was, you know, running three products was one thing. You're running 15, I would have had to triple that staff, and it was just it was just too much. Yeah, well, there's two things I'd like to add to that to highlight. You know, that's the same as far as where the expertise is in the bike industry. You know, people are like, oh, everything's just made in China. It's like, well, it's a lot of it's Taiwan, and 
there's a reason for that. It's because that's where the experts are. These people can have been making carbon fiber frames or this part or that part for so long, and they're so good at it. And it's the cost of labor is less, and that's where all the specialty equipment is. Like to recreate that anywhere else, U.S. or otherwise, it's it's just yeah. it would take decades. Yeah, and you know then, what? I really no. I'm go sorry. ahead. Go ahead. I was say, you know, I, I really, I really care about our impact in the United States, and we have hired some people. My, my team is distributed. And there are parts of my team that, that live in like rural areas and, you know, the jobs that we create for them there are just are, are amazing. And I, I want to do more of that, right? Like think of all of the incredible talent that is in, you know, across the United States that if they've just, if they've just got an internet connection, which doesn't exist in all the rural areas, right? But in a lot of places, there's amazing talent where people are eager to work and they can work on distributed, distributed teams and make a real contribution. So that's, that feels great to me. Um, but at the same time, like I consider myself more of like a global humanist. I mean, I care about people's jobs and livelihood everywhere. And our T-shirt that's going to be coming out soon is made in Vietnam. And as you know, I used to live in Vietnam, right? I mean, I only made four dollars an hour there. Like, <laughs> you know, like so, you know, it matters too that jobs are happening there. What really matters is that the conditions for that labor, and, you know, and you know, the environmental and the economic, and that that it's done fairly and it's done correctly. So yeah. Well, it's a rising tide lifts all ships, right? If you help one area, it helps. There's, you know, it's funny because like there's a lot of cycling industry that's going to Vietnam as well, and it's because the quality of life and the the cost of, you know, what people what employees expect in Taiwan and China is rising, and as it does, the cost of the manufacturing there goes up, and Vietnam was still cheaper, so people are shifting there. Eventually, Vietnam will come up, and a lot of industry will find somewhere else. But you know, eventually, it might be centuries, but everyone's we're i think we're gonna all be at some somewhat level playing field at some point in the future and this is how it happens I, one would one would hope um can i tell a bike story sure so try, try to make it quick so uh, uh, my right hand man and i we once took this trip in panama where we flew to panama and then rode a bus picked a pick a town on a map rode a bus there and we bought bikes in a junkyard a local junkyard that we rode down the last road in, in, in Panama, this peninsula that was not written about by the guidebook. And it was this, it was a, it was a great, it was an unbelievable trip. Every time I went down a hill, I was, you know, I was totally scared. The bike used to like jigger, 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 you know, and we, we just rode these suckers for three days. And we, you know, we would show up in towns that we set off at 930 at night by headlamp and we'd, excuse me, we'd roll into towns that would have, you know, no hotel and we'd drink beers in the bar long enough until someone would take us in, take us in, like literally <laughs> dusted scorpions off their floor for, for me to sleep on. I mean, it was this great adventure, but it was inspired by the concept of when I was living in Hanoi of seeing what bikes can do. And, you know, market starts early in, in, in Vietnam to begin with, right? So five, six o'clock market is open. Like it's going. So what that means is that people who are bringing goods to market need to arrive there, you know, let's say 430. They, I, would, I would see when I would go to the airport super early in the morning, I would see these young girls, 16-year-old girls, and they're, they're riding with 100, 150 pounds of these, these vet market greens on the back of their bike on, a, on, a, on a, you know, a crappy Chinese bike that only had one pedal, right? Their, their right foot is in a shower shoe. That's that's on the what do you call it the spindle the peg the there's no yeah there's no pedal right and I would see them and I was and I was just you know we all ride these amazing bikes um, but 
you know, we rode for three days on, on bikes that came out of a junkyard, right? Like bikes, bikes can do fantastic things. So anyway, I just thought, I just thought I would share that and their determination of how hard they were working, um, in Vietnam is always impressive. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, the other thing I would add to your prior point was about ordering by the piece, right? Like you don't have to source every single little bit and piece to go into it. That's, you know, my friend and I speak of side projects. We just recently launched a sports nutrition company. And the first product is a hydration mix, you know, just sugar, electrolytes, flavors. And we found the flavor house we wanted because the, you know, we knew we needed to make something that tasted good. That's kind of like the first hurdle. And the flavor houses had the expertise of combining the ingredients and when everything is actually together, making it taste good. Kind of probably like, you know, a t-shirt manufacturer, they can combine the right type of thread that won't shrink separately from the shirt material and all this so that the finished piece looks good. And it was like, you know, we could have sourced all this stuff independently, but maybe we would have saved a few pennies. But man, the, the ease of just making one phone call saying, hey, I need 500 pounds of this flavor and ship it here. It's saves so much time. And then you can focus on the more important stuff of, you know, building your brand and growing the business. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Let's talk about how you determine which new products to make. Because like you said, you started with one pair of pants. Now you've got a few different pants. You've got jeans, shirts, blazer vest. What was like, how do you decide what to make next? Yeah. I mean, it's two things. I mean, the first is that they all come from, from my frustration with my existing products. Right. I mean, that's where the ideas come from. And there's just a deep well of ideas that are both in apparel and, and for other businesses. Um, but the second thing is we talk to our customers. Right. And Kickstarter is just an unbelievable um, community and feedback channel for that. And, and people enter Kickstarter because they think that the, the best thing about it is getting the money. Um, but what you don't realize is the best thing about Kickstarter is, number one, proving the idea. And number two, the customer feedback. That's those are the most powerful things of the channel. You're not going to make money in a Kickstarter project anyway, and we can go a little bit deeper in Kickstarter if if, if you want, if that's helpful. Um, but that's that's how we make our products. All right. On. Now, are there some where I mean, I'm sure you're like me, like every other entrepreneur. You got a million ideas. How do you decide? Other than like consumer feedback, are there you know maybe everybody wants a vest. Everybody wants. Yeah. X, Y, and Z, how do you pick which one to go with first or which ones to put on hold? Or are you trying to develop everything simultaneously and as one comes to fruition, you just run with it? Yeah, I mean, in the scope of my life, even outside of Bluffworks, like I put ideas into red, yellow, green. So there's ideas you're like, oh, that's fun, but it's red. It's not commercially viable or it's too capital intensive. Or it just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, there's green, these ideas like that would work. If I bring that to market, God, people will love that. And then there's this sort of yellow in between that are unproven. Um, for us, my customer service team tracks every piece of feedback we get. If you, if you're to say, Stefan, how many like seam stitching defects have you had? I can go on a web page and boom, I can, I can tell you every one, right? So, you know, we capture that feedback in apparel. Once you get to be of a significant side, there's a merchandising process. You have to realize that inventory for us is extremely capital intensive. And I think we're gonna talk a little bit about maybe about investment, um, later, but you know, what's when I talk to people about inventory, I mean, if you were an ice cream parlor and you were ordering those like five gallon round ice cream things that we've all seen and you had one flavor and you started to sell, you're like, yes, you know, I sell one of those suckers a day, right? What happens when you're going to have 10 flavors and you're going to sell three of them a day? Now you have to buy 30 of those ice cream gallon things, right? Now, what if I tell you that there's a minimum that each flavor you buy, you have to buy five of them. You need to buy five chocolate, five vanilla. I'm not selling you one. 
and apparel has you know tremendous minimums, right? So you you put all all this together, and then inventory gets to be you know very expensive. So in apparel, merchandising is important. Where we invest, um, where we invest our capital, and what products we're gonna we're gonna support really matter. So there are some things that an idea could could get killed from a merchant perspective, but that's that's sort of the genesis of it. There's the creative stuff, the frustration that comes from me, there's feedback from the customers, and then you apply a business lens to it. Okay, now I understand the term merchandising in terms of like in a retail store, uh, merchandising to me means how you present the product. How are you using that word? Because it sounds like maybe we're talking about different things. Well, I mean, I mean, essentially the same thing. Like what if I came out with a swimsuit right now? You'd be like, you know, you'd be like chino pants, blazer, dress shirt, travel jeans, Travel vest, swimsuit, hmm, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm excited to make a swimsuit. I want to make one, but when I make a swimsuit, it needs to be like summer shorts, t-shirt, right? All these other things that are going along with summer, then I introduce the swimsuit. Because not to mention, if I'm going to photograph that swimsuit, then I have to shoot it in a very summer setting, and photo shoots are expensive. So you better be running this photo shoot where you're getting three products out of it. Yeah, right? At least, right? <laughs> at least, exactly. Okay, so you're talking in terms of like a logical line extension, like you can't... Uh, you know, go from selling hamsters to a zebra. You got to sort of work your way up to something so different. Yeah, and it's important in the consumer's mind. I mean, sometimes I don't want to buy that from you, so I have right. to convince the, the customer that that I, they want to buy a swimsuit from me for a reason. And 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 this works for me because of the way that I communicate with our customers. You know, through our blog and the relationship we've built on Kickstarter. So that's great, but it would still be a leap in their mind. So I'm still not going to be as successful as if I I should make a pair of shorts first, right? Then I get to a swimsuit. Um, so that's the idea. Hmm. Okay. I want to talk just real quickly about like ethical and environmental stuff as far as like, you know, where you're making your products and the, the type of stuff you know, are using recycled materials or sustainable materials. And if so, if not, either way, like how important do you think that really is to your brand or to generating consumer interest? Yeah. So, I mean, like recycled is always something we're striving for. Our vest that just came out is the first thing that's using 60% post-consumer recycled material. Um, we attempt to put it in all of our products and it's a, it's a ladder to get there. And we, we follow Patagonia as the gold standard with that. And, you know, the ultimate is to have a completely closed loop recycling system that you, you build a garment and then it completely comes back and, you know, and it goes, right? That's the first thing. Um, the second is in terms of environmental, you know, we pay more to particularly dye things um, at the fabric phase using Oki Tech standards and other things that are not using harmful dyes. That's really important. And then the other in environmental has to do a lot with like shipping goods. I mean, if you're, if you're better planned out, you're shipping things on sea versus air. Um, that is often overlooked, but the way that you run the business in terms of the, of the mechanics can have a, a real difference in the impact. Um, and then lastly, our philosophy of the products. I mean, sometimes I, I see guys who are like, I'm going to Europe, I'm bringing two pairs of your pants. And I'm like, you should just bring one, right? <laughs> like that, that's it. I mean, like, you know, in your closet, like if you got a ch pair of chinos and a pair of jeans and maybe you have like a, a matching Gramercy pant that goes with our blazer, like that's, you're good. You're, you're good for more than a week right there. Right. So you should, we believe in, you know, owning fewer things that last longer that are machine washable that are not dry cleaned, um, and all that kind of stuff. So, and how important do you think that is to your customers? The one piece of feedback that I can share with our customers is that we, when we move things from the United States, um, to overseas and we produce in a mix of countries, not just China, um, is that, you know, we track the number of people who have said, Hey, like I, I, I was, I liked it because you, you produced in the United States, but all of the research shows that customers will tolerate 
something that's produced in the U.S. versus overseas, if it's an apples to apples product, once it's 10% more expensive and once you go beyond that, then they, then they fall off, right? What they actually care about is the product and the price. So I think in our, our experience, what people are really focused in is, is the product and it's well made. Um, in terms of environmental, I think everybody's getting more and more sensitive to that today and we all care about it. Right. Okay. So. Uh, let's see. We talked about how you discover what your customers are looking for. You guys have a lot of, you get a ton of feedback from them apparently. And you do surveys too. You know, you say, Hey, we're coming out with jeans. What do you want? Right. It's really fun. The, the feedback is amazing on the surveys. Like our, our customers, our guys are great. Cool. And yeah. soon women, right? You're launching a women's line. Very significantly. We're launching women. What yeah. was, cause that sort of ties into the last question, which was how do you, um, know which products to make and which to put on hold. So what was the driver in saying, you know what, we're going to go a little bit outside of what we've been doing and launch a women's line? Yeah, you know, honestly, it took an investor to push me over the edge on that. Um, we've been, same thing, customer service tracking the request for all these years. And we have some women that are like wearing our chinos pants. They're buying men's pants to wear. And, and, um, and I was just like, oh my God, women's is such a big deal. I mean, it's, I mean, just even like organizing the brand to think about, the, the message and the identity to take that, that photo, you know, to snap that first photo, right? Which says like, this photo is going to come out correctly with the right message, which means it's the right model. It's the right, like point of view, look and feel of the photo and where it's shot. She's wearing the right product. It's the right fit. It, it just all unravels from there. And I just didn't want to do it until I took it really seriously. And, um, it was, no, go ahead. I was, it was an investor that said like any participation on my part is predicated on a real commitment from you to do women's. And um, we did a survey and we got over 500 responses for women and they, they are frustrated. I mean, they're like, you know, I kind of joke that my business model is going to be to sell dresses to women who have cell phones because they'd really like to put it in a pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'd say you have a good market size. That's the idea, right? They're frustrated with, they're frustrated with their clothing. And I mean, I could tell you why, but I don't know how much you want to hear about like, well, I just, just in a nutshell, like women have odor issues too. You know, they don't want their undergarments to show. They care about fit. They feel like, you know, their products are not, they're more designed for fashion than they are for functionality. And they'd really like to have both. Um, they want to look elegant in their clothing, but not be too revealing. I mean, they're, they're frustrated. So when I saw those survey results, I was really excited and encouraged. And um, yeah, I can't wait to roll it out. Cool. So you mentioned that, you know, you want to encourage people to buy less and, you know, do more with what they have, which is obviously not a very capitalistic approach. But, you know, what I'm getting at is like, how do you how do you cultivate repeat business from your current customers when your selection is pretty small, especially compared to like a banana republic or somebody that's constantly pumping out new styles and colors? Like I looked on yours and of the three dress shirts you had, unless you've updated, it's been a few months. You know, like there was one style that I like. So I have one of your dress shirts and like I'm not going to wear the same shirt every single day. No. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it's all about the product, the brand and the service that once you do that, I mean, especially male customers are extremely loyal that once they find a brand that they buy, they really stick with it. Um, I, I, I don't think we, we don't do anything that says, hey, we need to do this to keep our customers. We just we just operate how we operate. And then that becomes a positive result out of that. We do say, boy, if we make, you know, a couple of different pairs of travel pants and this, this magic suit pant, our guy will buy denim for us. We do think about it that way. Like, what does the guy want to see from us, right? Um, but we just execute in the way that we feel is right, and then the customer sticks around. 
Yeah. Do you think you need more variety in terms of like I think pants? You know, okay, you've, you've got your basics, right? Like denim, khakis, gray or black or blue, whatever, right? Pick one of those, and then uh, the blazer. You know, most people can get by with one blazer. You know, maybe you want a blue and a gray if you're having to wear it all the time. But shirts, I feel like, man, at least one a day during the week, just to mix up the variety. And is that? Do you see the need for that, or are you fine with what you've got? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, I mean, the shirt never wrinkles and it's antimicrobial, so you can wear it for multiple days. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing, right? I mean, like it drives me crazy to wear something for a day. Like where my clothes live is on my fit, foot locker, right? I just, I just wear the same thing. You know, you get up and, and, and I put the pants on and maybe I wear the same shirt again, or if I've worn it once, it's in my drawer and I know I can wear it again, right? That's the first thing. But the second is that, um, there's an interesting story behind the shirt, which is that what people are really asking for is solids and that material doesn't look good in a solid. You're like, what? So like guys, I mean, I've even done it myself for like, you know, we have like check patterns and you could take the little white part and you put your hands down and you box out all the colors or lines. You're like, I see the white. It looks good. It doesn't. It's, it's too shiny. And it looks synthetic. And the shirt with the patterns is, is, is extremely elegant. Like we use this technical dress shirt fabric because you can see the weave in the materials. That's our whole goal to make a technical product that doesn't look technical. And I... I'm really I'm unwilling to put out a solid dress shirt um, that that looks wrong. And actually, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I just tested one, I don't know, days two days ago, and um, I slept in it for two nights. And the fabric looks great. It didn't wrinkle, and it pills. So this material that is a special branded yarn by a company that I, I won't mention, um, the dress shirt they gave me pilled in two days. Total, total failure. So the search continues. How long does it typically take when you say, okay, I've got a new product and you're looking for a new material. How long does that typically take from start to finish to find exactly what you're looking for? The hardest thing is that it's not deterministic in this case. I mean, somebody who's more commercial could say, you know, if I tell you, you need to launch a product next year, you need to launch a polo shirt. You need to guarantee to me that you're going to have a polo shirt in 12 months. And Despite that, you know, we have big goals to really add to the product line. I can never commit to that because it took me two years to get a polo shirt because they all, you know, the polos that are out there look too technical. They're not soft. They're not elegant. And they all pill, right? So you can have like an Under Armour golf polo or you can have a technical polo. Maybe another company make, looks too looks too technical or you can have an elegant Drake, J. Crew polo. I want the elegant J. Crew polo. I can wear multiple days that that I can be on a bike and not sweat in, right? And the collar won't so, curl. Please do it with a collar that won't curl. And the collar won't curl. Okay, that's, that's a great one right there. And the colors won't fade. Um, I mean, to answer your question, it, you know, with apparel, it takes a long time. I mean, the production the production cycle for, for textiles can be between like, you know, 70 and 90 days. So that's three months right there. So it depends on whether or not you're going to someone and you're testing something that they have sample yardage on. They don't have sample yardage, then you need, you know, six to eight weeks for them to make make yardage for you, right? If it's custom, if it's custom and you're adjusting their process. So you're waiting six to eight weeks, you get something, then you got to sew it, then you got to test it. Apparel is an extremely long development cycle. Hmm. So months or years. Okay. Real quick, just more personal curiosity, colors. How do you pick colors for when it has such a long development cycle? How do you know what's going to be popular, you know, a year from now? Yeah. Um, I, I guess if I give you my unvarnished answer, it's poorly, you know, <laughs> um, someone described to me recently, the further you go in the business as an entrepreneur, like in the beginning, you're wearing all the hats and as the, the bigger the day one, I have every hat on. It's just me. Right. And then as you go further, you start taking off these hats 
and handing to other people. And you know, in the beginning, I picked the colors, and and actually, let's talk about the benefits of Kickstarter. You know, uh, you know, I was such an idiot that I didn't launch a black, which we don't make black, we make charcoal. But like, our customers screamed on Kickstarter, like, you need charcoal, and so we launched it in the middle of our first Kickstarter campaign. You know, I scrambled, I added the color. It became our best-selling color then. It's our best-selling color now. Right? I think that's the one I got. <laughs> So, so there you go, right? Yeah. So, um, so the first thing is I picked them, and then the second thing is I had a stylist pick them, and then now, you know, I my team, experts in fashion and merchandising, you know, we have a I don't know fourteen hundred dollar light box. We have a box that if I showed you these three colors, I'd be like, which one do you like? You'd be like, they're all the same, and I'd be like, no, 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 they're all th- all three of these are red, right? That red is too green. That red is too blue, and you're like, what are you talking about? It's red. It's a very subtle thing, and you need an in- industry expert to to pick those colors. Um, we're not. We're not super trendy. We don't make things that we're going to sell for this quarter and then go out of season style. That's that's not our guy, right? All right. Yeah, I was going to say the the original pants you have, you guys still have them, and they really, from an outsider looking in, they really haven't changed. And what you started in 2012, I think. That's right. Yeah, yeah that, they're still they're still going. They're still popular. So we haven't gotten rid of them. Um, but we are going to be upgrading other co- other products with new colors. You're going to see you're going to see a different vibe to the brand. Um, this spring so right on all right we got there's a multi-stage conversation coming up here between us about capital going from startup all the way to where you are now but the last thing i want to talk about before that is marketing so your current customers once you got them they tend to stay on board how do you reach new customers what kind of marketing are you doing yeah so i mean the way we look at the marketing is that there's four levers you know there's advertising there's seo there's there's pr which we call partnerships right and there's social there's four levers. And the most interesting thing in marketing is like the number of times over the last six years, m- mostly in the early days, but I would like hire, you know, somebody work on PR, right? Or we try to push our ads. You're trying to, to sell something. I mean, this, you know, Sarah Palin's lipstick on a pig, you know, in that case is, is accurate. If you have a great product and you have great photography and you have a great m- message, all of those things are going to be easier, Right. Nobody's going to pick you up in PR if your product's not great doesn't, and the photography doesn't look great. You know, your social ad is not going to work, right? So um, for us, it's a mix of all four of those channels. Um, a big part of our, of, our, of our brand is rooted in travel, and travelers like to talk about their products. So it's a huge word-of-mouth thing um, that drives the business. Yeah, so start with good product and then good photography of that product. Sounds like the foundation for yeah, I think it's really important to pour gas on what works also. So, what's, so sorry, what is working, like in particular? What's working and maybe you could give us some examples of what's not working or hasn't worked in the past. Yeah, I mean like the Blazer would be a great example of, of like the notoriety and the coverage and, and the press we've gotten from the Blazer and the way people talk about it. That's something that works, right? So then we should – we're working on pouring gas on that um, – we certainly acquire a lot of customers through it, you know, whether it's from advertisements or whether it's through SEO or social. Um, but also we could say, wow, our customer wants blazers. We could add more blazers, right? Um, that's the way. But the second thing is to realize like all of these are extremely competitive. I mean, I think people are sort of they're realizing that, that that golden age is gone. And and maybe when we talk about the route of startup and capital, we'll go back to Kickstarter a little bit. But those, those magical days in Kickstarter of putting something on Kickstarter and like, boom, it just takes off or gone. You got to bring your own audience, so that's competitive. Social's competitive, competitive, right? It's we you know all of the channels are are overwhelmed 
with everybody screaming on them. Um, ads are competitive. You, you need a, a cost of customer acquisition to be sustainable, right? And, and that's competitive against everybody else who's trying to show the same ad for the same product. So um, you, you need to test and you need to experiment with the channel and then you figure out what works for you and then you know you, you, you pour gas on that and you try to innovate that. Yeah. Do you use influencers anyway? Like do you seed products out to people with a following and if so, does that work well for you? You know, lightly. Um, we, 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 we use more of what we call them more partners, right? So they'll be like travel bloggers, for example who travel and they have a following and they, you know, we always give a product for somebody to test. And it's very much like, like it, don't like it. And I mean, I, it's hard for me to think of someone who hasn't liked it. Right. But it's always like they, for them to be behind the product, they have to use it and love it. Um, and then they talk about it. We don't do this, like send stuff to a fashion influencer on social. We've tried that maybe once or twice and that hasn't moved for us, which says what, you know, what is it about our brand? And it's that our products are utilitarian. So if you see someone on social who just looks amazing, they might look amazing in our blazer, but the whole point of our blazer is that it's machine washable and it has all these hidden security pockets, right? That you can ball it up in your bag or wear it on your airplane, right? So we have to have the right message to capture the customer. Gotcha. All right. Is there anything you've done or tried marketing-wise that has just been a complete failure or waste of money? Um, you know, PR. <laughs> PR. Meaning I mean, what, just sending out a press release, hey, we have a new blazer? No, I mean, I've probably gone through like three different PR, uh, you know, I'll say quote firms, right? But some like individual consultants and then some like little small firms, you know, we've done that three times. I'm probably forgetting one, maybe four, you know, and it's just, it just, I always, I, I just believe now at, at a stage, at a certain stage, you should do your PR yourself because, because first, first of all, it's not that hard to, to actually reach, reach people these days. And the second thing is that, once you reach them, if you have a great product, again, it's going to work. And if somebody else reaches them for you and your product and message is no good, it's not going to work for them, right? So that's what we've seen. I'm sure that once we're, we're bigger, I'm sure for larger companies, it makes sense to have larger firms that are handling PR. Um, but at, at really at a small stage, I, I think there's a lot of people. I don't know anybody who did well at a small stage putting money in PR and they just had to go boom. And everybody will tell you that quote – that Bill Gates, you know, said probably 25 years ago, if I had one last dollar to spend on marketing, I'd send, I'd spend it on PR. That's, that's the quote everybody will, will throw at you. But, um, for, for startups, I have not seen that PR bear fruit. Yeah. Well, it's to go with the outside firms is very expensive. And I've always wondered what the return is on that compared to if you took that same amount and hired somebody, even if it was a part-time job, you would have somebody that was focused 100% on your brand instead of a firm that's maybe delegating to two or three junior whatevers or has their attention drawn between, you know, 20 other brands that they have as clients. You know, it's, I think if people looked at the numbers, they could very easily bring somebody on that was really just focused on them. And then it's the return, you know, from a media standpoint for what I do with Bike Rumor, being able to call somebody at the company directly and get my questions answered super fast as opposed to a lot of times having to wait for a PR company to go back and check with the company, come back, and then you got follow-ups. And it's just, it adds a lot of time and delay. And in the, the today's media world where everything needs to be instant, it's almost yeah. like whatever brand that was just lost out on being part of the story because we can't wait a day. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes weeks. So. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about the spend. You know, I can, I can actually help quantify that, right? So every, every dollar that we spend really needs to bring three. 
right? So if, let's say if you spend $5,000 on PR, which is not an unreasonable budget, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know any PR that'll, that'll run for more, less than like 3000 a month. And then, you know, you're getting a tiny slice of their time, right? You're trying to buy their book. You're trying to hire a person for a small amount that says, oh, I have all these contacts, you know, but they have all the same contacts that kind of everybody else does, you know? So anyway, so you hire, let's say you hire them for five grand a month. That's got to, that's got to bring 15 grand, right? So why, why does it have to bring $15,000? So let's say $15,000 in sales, you know, you just throw your cost of goods in there. Let's say your cost of goods, if they're better than 50%, let's say your cost of goods are 40%, you know, you have a 60% margin, right? And then if you just spend a third of it on PR, you know, then you, then you, then that margin 60% went down to 30. Um, there's cost of goods. I didn't mention distribution cost in there. So if your distribution cost is 10%, I mean, their margins getting eaten quickly, right? So, you know, PR needs to be looked at as, as, as cost of customer acquisition. You need to, if somebody says it's $5,000 for PR, you have to type in that cost of customer acquisition and see how many customers your assumption, I assume they're going to, you know, my, my CAC is $50 a customer. Cause that's what I can afford. Um, just making up a number, you know, then you're going to see how many, how many sales they anticipate to bring and what's the revenue out of $50 CAC. It's like, do I think they can do it for a $25 CAC? Then they're like, oh, wow, now I got all these sales, right? And then what are the chances? We do PR exactly the way you described. I have an in-house team that that's, works with partners. Right. People. And maybe if that costs, you know, less, if you spent, you know, Less if you spend a thousand a month and you're like, great, I got three thousand in sales, that works, and then you start ratcheting up, right? But to go for this big five thousand, five thousand a month, three months, that's fifteen grand. Do they bring forty-five grand in sales? And by the way, at forty-five, you just break even. And they all tell you it's gonna take three months to get going. It's it's a big nut. Yep. But that's just I like it. I'm glad you put numbers to it because I think that gives people something concrete they can plug into their own system as opposed to this abstract idea of, well, it might cost too much, or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the problem is you can't test. I mean, everything else, you can test an ad, you can test a message, you should, right, all these little things that you can test, and it's cheap to test them. So any kind of technique that's going to be expensive to test um, is where it gets risky. Yeah. Maybe it becomes like hopes and prayers as opposed to a tactical tool, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's switch to capital because there's a lot to talk about there, I feel like. Um, mm. You started pulling money out of your own pocket to get the fabric and get it going, went to yep. Kickstarter to prove the concept and raise that, that launch capital, then went to friends and family. And now you've gone on to bigger things. So let's start where you want to start next. I know we talked a little bit about the, the initial stages first. Yeah. I, w- I yeah, I'd love to do a quick blast on Kickstarter. This is something I'm passionate about and this is where people looking to start something usually have the most questions. So let's just talk about the first phase. Like, even taking money out of for a second, like what are you trying to do? You have an idea and, and you know, I want to get it after the down. There's a couple things you need to accomplish, right? And the first is that you need to prove the idea. You need to prove that the dog will eat the dog food. You need to prove that people like it. So whatever it is, I'm going to make a new water bottle, right? That does whatever this water bottle does. You, you have to prove that, that it's, that people are interested. Um, it's, you know, it's sort of a sad statistic that 14% of the projects on Kickstarter never get a single pledge. So, you know, we can say that, wow, those are sort of unrealistic people or whatever. But the point is there are entrepreneurs with ideas that they really believe in that don't move. Right. So you got to prove that it works. Um, you know, the, then the, the second thing is whether or not you can make it. So that's important to prove at this phase. So Meaning I have this can idea. Can it be actually be manufactured at a cost that makes sense? 
can you make it? And then step two is, can you make it a cost, right? And this should be very, this should be very high level. I mean, it needs to be accurate. Like we have this financial pro forma, which I think is a, is a really fantastic model for running our business. And it took us three versions to get there. Meaning like, you know, what are the sales? When, you know, what are the sales? What are the costs? How it's all in there? And the timing, cash flow is everything. At this phase, this sort of trying to get something off the ground, you're a little bit more of the back of the napkin, but you need to understand the big forces in your business, right? And remember my, my ice cream example, every flavor you buy, you have to buy five gallons. Like you better put that stuff in there because that affects whether or not you can make it, right? Because you say, well, I can make profit on every single ice cream cone. Oh, but I need $10,000 to buy the minimum of, of, of the raw materials or the, the, the inventory. Yeah. Right. And that's going to change as you, as the business grows and scales, is there a, that's gotta be really hard to figure out or almost like a, a mind killer to try and say, well, it's this now, but oh my gosh, what's it going to be when I'm doing 10 times, hundred times, thousand times this volume, presumably, yeah, think- hopefully the cost would go down, but maybe your minimums go way up. Yeah. Well, the minimums, the minimums will usually, they'll either stay the same or sometimes you can, well, in peril, they stay the same because that's just where the machines are, are set up and what's what's where they're for them. But the minimum becomes a smaller percentage of what you're selling, right? If you sell 20 gallons of chocolate a day and you got to buy them in five gallon increments, then the minimum is no longer an issue, right? But the problem is the bigger you get, usually the more capital has rolled in there. So if you're like, we're doing really great in this one ice cream shop, but now we want to open three more, you know, even just the deposits on those leases, right? that capital's piling up, it's getting sunk in those stores, right? So the bigger you get, the more capital it takes. I have an advisor that says the, the further you get, the harder it gets. <laughs> and he, I haven't been able to prove him wrong yet. So there you go. Um, so that's what you're trying to do at this, fir- at this first phase. And um, in terms of, so what I did is I put the project on Kickstarter. It was a very special time at Kickstarter. We were a staff pick on Kickstarter. I expected to raise like 15 or 20 grand. We raised 128,000 and it was like unbelievable, right? Um, maybe, but, but those days are sort of gone in Kickstarter and that people now need to bring their own audience. Like you, I'm sure you're familiar that people are running ads to bring into Kickstarter projects, right? right yeah. Right. So so it gets expensive. You're not going to make money on Kickstarter. Um, you, what you're going to do is you're going to get your company off the ground. You're going to gather customers. You're going to improve sales. The chances of you making money are very slim. And um, recently, there's a project that I've I've funded. And um, maybe just as a note, you and I can send a note to this fellow to to let him know that we referenced him in the show before this airs. Um, but I want to share the specific reference. So this the project on Kickstarter that's since shut down, it was this, this pull-up bar called Flexer. F-L-E-X-R. And in his final update, which he made public, um, I really don't like it when people on, when you do a, an update on Kickstarter, you can make it private to the backers or you can make it public. And I just, I just think that the reasons for ever having a private update should be few and far between. Um, he made his update public and he did a rundown of what he spent. And for his project that raised, whoops, I don't have the total at my fingertips, 140 grand. Let's see what he raised. The punchline is going to be, he's going to tell you how much he spent in marketing, in legal, and Kickstarter fees. So let's start with what he spent. So what he spent in his total crowdfunding costs were $75,000. The video was $5,000. Facebook ads before launch were $10,000. Influencer marketing, Kickstarter fees, other costs, you know, that kind of stuff. He spent $75,000. And what he raised, um, I, let's just call it one hundred and forty. 
So there's like half your money there. Now, the biggest question I get when people ask me about, okay, here it is. He raised 177. He raised 177 and he spent 75 on crowdfunding costs. We have not talked about manufacturing. Yeah, I was going to say, he used almost half his money just to just to launch, you know, without he spent, product. He spent 106 on manufacturing. He so, raised 170. Yeah, so 70, he walks away zero and hopefully, you know, hopefully he was able to produce enough to not just fill the backers' orders, but then have some inventory left to sell afterwards. Because that's I've heard that's a problem too, is people will raise enough to fill those first orders and then they're left with nothing for round two to actually become a real business. Happens all the time. Hey, we didn't talk about shipping. You spent thirty-seven thousand on shipping. Oh wow! Right, so you get the idea. And I just, I just want to say, I have the guy's product. You know, he delivered. He did a great job. You know, I love the pull-up bar. Right, and um, you know, and I empathize with him. I, I, I think about the number of people who have a dream that want to run a Kickstarter project that never had it happen. Right, and he did it, and his head is held high, and this fantastic data that you and I are benefiting from right now. So, I mean, talk about you know, a quality upfront guy, right? Great updates on his project. So, but we're able to, to look at this and say, whoa, Kickstarter costs are intense. The biggest question I get, you know, boy, I'm going to get a lot of nasty grams, right? Like so far we've, we've sort of talked down PR for startups. Um, <laughs> he shared what he sta- say, what he spent on Kickstarter marketing firms and he spent $35,000 in a marketing firm, right? So that's the other question I get. Should I use a marketing firm? And, um, you know, they pay off if your, if your project goes through the roof, they can pull gas on it. But if it's going through the roof, then it shouldn't necessarily need the gas. Right. Yeah. And if it's not, then you kind of wonder like, you can't pour fuel on something that's not burning. You know, it's not going to make a big fire if it's not already on fire. Very rare. Exactly. Very rare. And so, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I wonder too, right? Like you, you spend money on Facebook guys, social ads, whatever it is. Like if you spent even a fifth of that 35 grand on just social ads, like that's a lot of money to spend on ads that are reaching people for, you know, 10, 20 cents CPM. Like it you is would blow it up. It is. Now let's, let's, um, let's talk about the one thing that these guys really do have in their favor of what can make them effective is that they have databases and lookalike audiences of people who back projects on Kickstarter. So, that's how they are successful. And it's all about a channel. I mean, Kickstarter is a channel, right? So if someone's like, oh, I don't buy from there, and we show an ad to a guy who's interested in a product, you know, a pull-up bar or whatever it is, but he is not a Kickstarter backer, then he won't buy it from the channel. It's not going to work. So that is the one thing that, that, that the companies really have in their favor is that they have these audiences built up. Um, I will say that there are more and more um, small companies and, and email lists that have built these up that can build lookalike audiences in Facebook or even or have a certain amount of direct targeting on email such that you don't need to go to the biggest of biggest firm and, and I would say pay as much as, as I've seen these guys charge. Right on. Okay. Um, uh, Kickstarter, is uh, anything else you want to add or do you want to talk on the next phase me, when you went to friends and family? I would just leave it real quick of what makes a Kickstarter project successful and I would say the hook is everything somebody needs to open it, they need to see your product and be like, damn, that's special and unique, right? Because you're competing against everything else. Um, it needs to be super well presented and the product needs to be really far along and you need to come across as like the most passionate person in the realm for it. 
and the way that, that you should do it, the, the, the things you should do to be successful and Kickstarter or anything else is you need to study the crap out of it, right? You need to look at other campaigns. How much did they raise? How many backers did they bring? What's their price point? What did their backers say in the comments? That's super effective. You should test before you go to Kickstarter. Why don't you make a landing page and run some ads and then it turns into a coming soon, right? Yeah, and you build can say, an email list. So like you said, bring your audience. Build the email list. Absolutely. You got to, yep. Build the audience, right? Um, and then you just got to be careful. You, careful with your finances and you really should, you should build a team because their people on the team are going to see blind spots that you don't see. That is, that's a, super important for the whole thing in entrepreneurship. It feels like it's a mirror that you hold up and then, you know, I just realized, you know, over time, like, man, I'm not nearly as good as that as, as so-and-so is, right? And you have to comp compensate for your, your blind spots. Um, same thing's true at Kickstarter. This is your coming out, right? It needs to be solid across the board. So you should build a team at that phase um, to make sure that you're fully covered. So when you did your first Kickstarter, did you, have you used Kickstarter since or did you just use it for that first product? Yeah, we've done four. We've okay. done our original pants, our chino pants, our blazer, and our meridian shirt. So the sure. first one, did you come out of it with capital left over to reorder a second round? Like, how did you end up? We came out. No, we were certainly in the hole, and we came out with with inventory, right? Um, but but even at that stage, I don't even have the you know a great accounting of that because I didn't have a CFO on board, right? So at that phase, I had fifty five thousand dollars of money from um, friends and family, basically. Okay, and that was that necessary to keep you in business and allow you to reorder and grow? I mean, I mean, first of all, I had a day job, so that was good. It was funding it, right? But um, second, yeah, I mean, I ordered 3,000 yards of material, right? How did I pay for that before the Kickstarter project ever launched? So I, I needed that help of capital. It was completely instrumental. We wouldn't have made it without that. All right. And then so. you've grown. Presumably, you're doing well. It seems like you are. You're continuing to add products. Um, Lately, you've been exploring options to bring on investment capital in some form. So what was that process and what, what uh, avenue did you end up taking? Yeah, so in the past, um, you know, we're in the beginning of 2019 right now, right? So in 2018, I raised a million and a half of outside capital. From where? So it was a mix of three sources. Um, the first is that I brought on small angel investors. Um, the second is that we sent an email to our customers, which actually generated some angel investors, which is really rare. They have to be accredited investors. There are some platforms now that allow you to essentially do um, Kickstarter for uh, – it's like Kickstarter for crowdfunding, crowdfunding for equity, right? When, the, when they pass the Jobs Act, there are platforms uh, that you can, you can use to give up small amounts of equity for small investments like $1,000 with non-accredited investors. Um, and then – I believe they're not accredited. Now I'm linking the legal fees. I'm pretty sure that those platforms let you do it with non-accredited investors. That's the whole point. Yeah, that was the whole point of it. Yeah. yeah and you, you did use one of those? I did not use that platform, but we, but I did have a couple of investors come in that that were customers. So we should consider them in the in the angel category as well. Um, and then we used AngelList, which is a platform for accredited investors um, as part of our fundraising. And then the last thing is that I went on a podcast called The Pitch. And that was a lot of fun. Tell me about that. Was it uh, it's similar to Shark Tank, right? Exactly. It's, you know, Shark Tank on audio. It, I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say. It was a great time. I got a big smile on my face. It was just a lot of fun. I just, the episode went really well. You know, we should listen to it. 
uh, the Gimlet Media, the pitch online. It was it was a great thing. And there's some, you know, there's some parts of the they, they do a follow up call, you know, for, kind of for the whole story. You have to listen to that. Um, but those three things together raised a million and a half last year. Okay, so maybe spoiler alert: if you want to listen to the pitch first, uh, fast forward a couple of minutes on this episode. But how did it go? Did you get an offer? Did you take it? And it went it went great. Um, yeah, I mean, I got. I mean, all four were interested in the room they were in, and then what happens is that once you you know go a little further, things change. Um, there are some things that have happened after the show that I feel like are sort of a story that's been told that's the property of the pitch that I haven't even that they don't even know yet. Um, but let's say, you know, there's a percentage of them that were participating, right? Um, I, I think the most interesting thing about, well, you probably, your next question is how do we do this? Right. And I raise the money. Sure. <laughs> I had another question, but that's no, no, more of a closer. No, no yeah, please, but please ask, ask yours. Well, it's, I think yours is a better intermediate question leading to the other one is, so how do you raise that money? Yeah, I, I think. The most interesting thing that people don't do is they don't really understand the target of what they're pitching to. We're too focused on us, right? They're going to love us and invest money if my deck is really good or I say these things like me, me, me. And you need to understand the target of of the capital investor. And um, I haven't, I haven't, I've never spoken about this publicly about the but the way that I see it. But the first thing is, is like, like like Tyler, why do you think people invest? Uh, because they want to return. It's they're thinking about what they're going to get out of it. It's like customers, right? Like they're buying your clothes because they think that it's going to improve their life. They're not doing it because they like you and they want to help you. That's true that they don't want to help you, but I don't. I don't think that that their their motivation all the way at the end is because because they just want to make money. We got to peel this back further. Like we really got to understand. You know when you see a product and you're like, oh my god, they don't buy it for this reason. They buy it for that reason. Like when you've heard about. Um, the reason that people buy um, some of the breakfast bars is because cereal takes too long to make and they eat it in their car. And that's terrible, right? That's terrible. We don't want to live in that society. But that's but that's what it is. And you're like, oh, my God, that's why they buy a breakfast bar, right? It's about speed. So I think that the reason that, that people invest in a company is because it wants they, – they, they want to feel alive. They want to feel alive. So let's 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 unravel this for a second. They're not investing. They're they're selecting you versus someone else because they want to make a good investment that makes money. And they don't care about helping you, right? It's not about charity thing. But the reason as an investor, they're not doing this to eat. They don't need to make money to eat. So they're either a wealthy individual, right? Well, why haven't they quit working? Why is, why is Warren Buffett still working? Because he does it because it makes him feel good because he's alive, right? And why is it not like these guys at VCs? Why are they doing this, right? Yeah, maybe they want to make money because it's their personal thing. They want to feel alive. The reason this matters is because they, they need to connect with your idea. You need to find somebody that connects with your idea. And once you connect on that wavelength, then you're like, okay, I have somebody who's interested. And then we get to the point of saying, well, yeah, they're only going to invest in you if they make money, right? But I think it's really important to understand like these VCs as people. And we don't do that. We're just like, but 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 everybody tells me it's too early. Like you get that, like or or, or founders complain about VCs. Like nobody will invest in me because it's too early, right? And you just you need to understand their what they're seeing. So that's the first thing is I think because it you makes them feel you know it makes them their blood pump. They want to invest in something that makes their blood pump. The second um, is certainly their their objective. What kind of level of money are we talking about? So you need to find an investor that's your right magnitude. We're we talking about a fifty thousand dollar investor. 
you know, or do a ten thousand dollar investor is a, is is a very small level investor. That's really friends and family. Fifty or hundred above is we're talking angel. You start to get into firms. You know, we're talking million dollars. People have different objectives for their money. So when you're pitching them, you need to understand what are they trying to get out of it. What are they trying to achieve with their money? And there are really different outcomes. All right. Yeah, I think at the firm level, oftentimes they're handling, they're representing other people's money. And so they have to think about, you have to think about how your deal will make them look to their investors. That is exactly right. They got to raise, they got to raise capital too. Yeah. You know, that's exactly right. And then it comes into their pride and ego, right? They don't want to have egg in their face. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the third about this is that the lens of which they look at your deal, um, we already said they don't care about charity. The economics of your deal really matters. And they're going to see 10 more deals tomorrow. And that's, you're not, you know, when you're in the moment, again, you're thinking about you, you're like, but, 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 this is a great idea. But then imagine yourself in a room and there's a thousand people that are standing next to you. You're, thousand, you're, you're one out of a thousand. And they're all probably pretty great ideas by the time they get to that point. And let's say they're all great ideas, yeah. right? So now are you still feeling like, but, 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 it's great, great, great. Then you start, then you go, oh, shoot. <laughs> and then you say, okay, now, you know, we need, we need to really stand out, right? Yeah. And really, it's, I think it, at every level you need to stand out. Because like you said, make that connection. I mean, a $10,000 investor is probably not seeing pitch after pitch after pitch. But you're right. If you connect with them in some way, then they are going to get excited about what you're doing. And they're going to be excited to be a part of that. Yeah. And, you know, just in my own experience, you know, I learned my limitations and I learned that the channels that I was doing well with and I did very well with angels. I get them a blazer. They wear it. They love it. They believe in me. Um, they believe that I'm going to, to, to go the distance. They can trust their money to me um, and they get on board. With VC firms, I pitched a bunch of, bunch of them and they're always, you know, the interaction will go great and they're always sort of be like, a, eh, right? Because, you know, maybe they're looking for something that's more of a rocket ship. Right. And it, or maybe we're a little bit, you know, this is this is an interesting paradox. People are like, it's much easier to raise, you know, five million bucks than it is to raise five hundred thousand. And I've, I have I've heard that. seen that. Yeah. I've certainly seen that if we were a larger company and we were looking to raise five million to achieve a level of growth then absolutely. Um, and, and that frustrates us. But let's think about it from their standpoint, too. Let's say they have a hundred million dollar fund. How are they going to allocate their time? Five million a chunk you know, a hundred million. Okay. So they're running, you know, they're running 20 deals, right? Instead they're of not 200. Gonna, <laughs> instead of 200. Yeah. Right. So once again, it's all about us. You need to understand the perspective of the investor you're talking to. All right. I like it. Okay. So you raised a million and a half. What are you doing with the money? How is that helping you? Number one, inventory. Number two, marketing. Number three, team. Okay. And so inventory. You've got, you've got a good amount of inventory to sell to grow like how I mean, how are you growing because i don't think you're selling through retail stores right so is it all it's all direct right yeah it's all online yeah i mean i think you know by the end of this year we'll have a million dollars in the cost of our finished goods if that, sitting in a warehouse sitting in the warehouse yeah what's the turnover rate like what are, and if you don't want to share your exact number just for somebody who might be thinking of doing an apparel business like what what is a good turnover rate and at what point should somebody be worried do you, when you say turnover, are you talking about the turns of the goods or are you talking about like the English term for turnover, which is your, your revenue? Yeah, no, goods. Like, okay, so say you order, you have that new vest, yeah, you ordered, 
I don't even know. I'm just going to make up a number, you know, 5,000 of them. Now, all of a yeah. sudden, you have 5,000 of them sitting your warehouse. Hopefully, some are pre-sold. But yep. how quickly do you need to turn those 5,000 over? Like, how quickly do you need to sell through those 5,000 and have another five or 10,000 on the way? Yeah, it has to do with the, the lead time of the, of the manufacturing, right? So if it takes you three months to do that, then you want to hold three months of inventory. You don't want to hold six months. Okay. So if the vest, you know, if the minimum, if the minimum, um, order quantity in the vest was a thousand pieces, uh, let's go, let's, let's say, let's say the minimum order quantity was 6,000, right. And I, I sell thousand a month. Then obviously I've got six months of inventory. If the minimum order quantity is 3000, well, boy, I'm doing much better right now. I only have to hold three months of inventory. So it has to do with the magnitude of, of the reorder. And you want, you want to turn cash as quickly as possible. You will learn that cash is everything. Yeah. And what, so if you have a three month lead time on the vest, you get like, at what point do you reorder? Do you reorder at two months so that they come in like just in time when you might be selling out or are you ordering like after a month so that you get, you have a buffer in case things blow up? Yeah. So unfortunately the, the lead time on the vest isn't three months, it's five it takes three months to weave the materials and deliver them to the, the facility. It takes six weeks to manufacture it and two weeks to deliver it, right? So three months plus two. So now we're at a five-month lead time, right? So five months in advance, you're choosing the colors. So, so here's what happens. So then you launch – so let's say you buy you – know, you sell vest in green and navy, right? So you commit to this. You've already made a decision, you know, 2,000 yards of navy, 1,000 yards of, of olive green. And then you go five months and then you sell something and then you realize, whoa, this green is just like flying off the shelves. Now you have to reorder those materials. You're five months out to react. Now you're in a different temperature season, right? So what you do is you end up taking a position on the materials and then, you know, to carry, we carry a larger number of materials that then we can cut through. Well, guess what? When we carry the vest color. We also need dye to match zippers, right? This is not as true in the vest, but if you look at our pants, you know, we have one, two, three, four zippers on our pants. We have a, a front fly zipper. We have two hidden pockets in the front and a zipper in the back. All of those zippers are dyed to match. So a khaki, a khaki chino has a khaki colored zipper. A charcoal has a charcoal colored zipper, right? Okay. So, and then, oh, by the way, the zippers change based on the size of the pants. So if you're a 32 inch waist, your front fly zipper could be like five inches tall. If you're a 42 inch waist, the rise of the pant gets bigger. You're not five inches anymore. It's a six inch zipper, right? So you're not just stacking raw materials, you're, you're stacking, I mean, um, fabric, you're stacking other kinds of raw materials. Now you've tied up all your capital on that. So this is another reason that we're manufacturing overseas is that we have partners that are willing to buy these materials in advance and hold them for us. So instead of a five-month lead time, we can be a, a two-month lead time from cut ticket to delivery. All right. But that's still a lot of capital tied up. It's a lot of capital. Hmm. That's why I raise money. Very good. Well, Stefan, it's, uh, it's been a while. I, I typically like to close with uh, at least one final question that's more general is if somebody were trying to start or wanted to start a company similar to yours, what advice would you give them? I mean, the real answer, don't do it. I mean, <laughs> like, All right, what, would you do it over again? Knowing what you know now, would you do it again? I mean, you know, when my mother used to ask me that and I used to tell her the real answer, you know, she'd be crestfallen because I was in the throes of the business, right? I have learned, I, I cannot even tell you how much I've learned about, about running a business. I will say that apparel is extremely difficult. And once upon a time, the maximum of the business to start used to be, you should, you should sell a low-priced product that lots of people buy 
repeatedly, right? Sell a little widget. And now the maxim is you should sell a digital product where you have a direct relationship with the customer and no cost of goods. <laughs> right. And they have to keep buying tokens or something. You know, it's like the apps on the game store. Right. So it's, it's changed. Um, it's changed my life. I am a completely different, not just person, but I'm a, I'm a different business person than I was two years ago. And even this fundraising process in 2018, like pretty much ran me into the ground. I mean, it had an unbelievably detrimental impact on my health. Um, so what I would say is, you know, all entrepreneurs have to defy something. Um, I, all entrepreneurs, I think, are on their own hero's journey, right? And you said in the beginning that we're all unrealistic. And we wouldn't do this if we didn't believe in ourselves and if we weren't able to throw off some of the details, right? And just dive in. And that's a beautiful thing. But I would hope that people are able to dive in in a really sustainable and kind of sane way because it ain't easy. Yeah. Well, that's hopefully what I, we can convey through these episodes and the other startup podcasts out there. It's like, you know, hey, go for it, but do it smart. That's That sounds great. Yep. Awesome. I hope so. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. I, <laughs> it's Fashion is one of those things where maybe not fashion, but like clothing, I always think, oh man, wouldn't it be cool to do something? And I think you've talked me out of it, but it was, uh, <laughs> oh, I definitely no. learned a lot. <laughs> I've got too many other things I want to do. There you go. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. It's a real pleasure. There's a ton to process in this interview, but one of the biggest takeaways for me is to keep your brand, well, on brand. He talks about all the types of clothing he could do, but the key is to focus on the types of clothing he should do, meaning which clothes are in line with his brand promise, his brand aesthetic. Sure, he'll probably do a swimsuit one day, maybe that's point F, but to get there without alienating his core customers, he's gotta make stops at points B, C, D, and E first. I liken this to our content strategy at Bike Rumor. We mainly cover bikes, so we couldn't just jump straight into covering cars, but we could occasionally cover a tricked out sprinter van with unique bike storage, and then cover a couple more with visuals that tie it into cycling, or using one of these custom vans for a mountain bike road trip. Then, eventually, we're at a point where we can have a regular van life series that focuses only on the vans. It took some time, but now it's a massively popular feature on our website. So before you jump into the next hot thing, step back and think about how it fits into your overall brand strategy and how your customers will receive it. Will they embrace it or will it just confuse them and scare them off? The other thought I want to leave you with is his idea of taking off hats. The more your company grows, the fewer hats you can wear. The trick is knowing when to hand one off to someone else and the bigger trick is not looking back. As always, thanks for listening. If you like this, could you share it with a couple of friends? And be sure to subscribe and leave a comment or rating on your favorite podcast player. That helps me out a lot. Here's hoping you're shedding hats left and right. Until next time, keep building. Keep building.